Hello and welcome to the 905er podcast. I'm Roland Tanner. I am Joel McLeod. This week we're joined by Glenn Bowerman of the Spacing Radio podcast. Spacing is something special and increasingly rare. A quarterly magazine printed on paper. But it's also an important website and a highly recommended and uh, interesting monthly podcast. In all its formats, Spacing exists specifically to discuss and promote ideas and discussion relating to urbanism in Canada's cities. And Glynn is specifically the voice and presenter of the Spacing radio podcast. Now, although it looks especially at urban issues in Canada's big cities, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Ottawa and Edmonton, it also explores many issues which are extremely familiar to everybody living in the 905 region. So uh, welcome Glenn Bowerman from Spacing Magazine to the 905 podcast. Uh, welcome Glenn. Thank you. Thank you Roland. Thank you Joel. And uh, I thought we'd kick off just for uh, those listeners who who probably are not familiar with with uh, Spacing and Spacing Magazine and the Spacing podcast. Uh, can you just, just describe who you are and, and what you do? Sure. Uh, well, I, I started with Spacing Magazine, which is a, a quarterly uh, Canadian urbanism magazine. Uh, it's been going on over 15 years now. Uh, and uh, I am in charge of uh, the podcast. Uh, we, we do monthly podcasts uh, along the same themes of, you know, uh, urban planning, transit design, uh, social issues, uh, police reform, uh, all, all of that stuff kind of rolled into one. And uh, we do try to cover, you know, cities across Canada, but uh, we are based in Toronto. And unfortunately, it, it is hard to uh, comment about things outside of the uh, the black hole that is Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> you, your word's not ours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's definitely, you know, I've been aware of spacing for quite a long time now. And uh, it, there's definitely a lot of overlap between what you do and what we do and uh, big fans of, of your work uh and to an extent we came into existence just because of that that kind of the the suburban angle that that um has its own challenges and difficulties and um uh you know it, it, well we'll come on to it over over this interview i'm sure but um uh yeah certainly we part of that our kind of inspiration was 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 some of the work that you've been doing with, with spacing now, um, and really, we you know again when you talk about urbanism and you know really advocating for better cities. Um, do, do you find you know a lot of our podcasts? Are, are we worry that that they come across very negative because it always seems that every bad you know the, the the good things that we want to happen in terms of walkable communities, cyclable communities less car dependence, uh, more density, but done in a kind of intelligent and healthy way. Uh, we seem to be losing so many battles all the time rather than winning them. And with, um, do, you, do you feel that over the 15 years that, you, that spacing has been in existence, that, that progress is actually being made in a good direction? That's difficult to say. Uh, when, when the spacing magazine started uh, well before my time there, uh, it, I think the, the general idea was to find things to celebrate about uh, cities and, and in the field of urbanism. Uh, it was an optimistic time. It was, you know, David Miller was the mayor. Uh, 
there, there was just a lot of um, creative, progressive thinking and, and fresh ideas coming into the city. Uh, and it seemed like the political will and, and the money to, to make some of that happen. Uh, I joined this whole kind of <laughs> foray into urbanism uh, uh, out of journalism school in, in the Rob Ford uh, mayoral years. Uh, so I came from uh, more of the, the view of like, th this is broken and we need to fix it rather than, uh, you know, let's, let's celebrate some of the amazing things that are being done. Um, so I, I try not to, but uh, especially in recent years, months, whatever, uh, it, it's hard to not take a dim view, especially when we keep making the same mistakes, and not just in Toronto, like Canadian cities, cities all over the world in North America. Uh, we, we know their mistakes and we make them anyway. You know, coming off of this uh, recent provincial election, um, the idea of development and and, and construction you know that 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 was kind of a central theme for some of this uh election i thought um now i'm, I'm not gonna ask you to go into the various party platforms whatnot but i just thought do you get the sense that people are taking another a newer or more proactive view of this uh th this issue in terms of how what they want their communities and their their cities and their neighborhoods to start looking like uh than they did before I'd like to think at least, um, you know, city planners in the various uh, GTHA communities, um, they, they seem to all get it for the most part. And, uh, and I think it was um, encouraging that when Doug Ford first came to power, um, you know, four, four years ago, uh, and there were sort of, there were rumors that the, the green belt would be somehow threatened, uh, that there was pushback from a lot of people. And uh, even, even amongst older conservatives, I, I think the sense is that the green belt is something that should be protected. Um, uh, but uh, so I guess that's, that's something to take heart in. Um, in terms of things like, uh, you know, single family zoning, that kind of thing, I, I think it really depends which side of your bread is buttered you know like uh, th there's a contingency of people that don't want to see change and uh will we'll fight against anything that whiffs of it um and then there's a lot more people uh who are just trying to get a foothold uh, be it uh, the ability to buy a house or just you know be able to afford a, a you know a, a safe and uh and decent uh, apartment building something like that um I, I think there's a lot more of those people just trying to find some stability in a very unstable housing market uh, than there are these, you know, powerful uh, homeowners who, who have a sort of outsized influence politically. We were just discussing before we came online how, well, it's kind of my experience anyway, in 2018 of, of running in an election and how the the conventional advice to to people canvassing in, in municipal politics is don't bother with apartment blocks because you're wasting your time because right. they, they you know i live in an apartment now <laughs> i mm -hmm. just want to point that out <laughs> um but um they don't vote and um and and what was true was they were very often not on the voters list because the municipal uh the body then in control of uh, of building the voters list uh, which was not elections ontario um uh did such a bad job that the, the you know entire apartment buildings were just completely missed from from now that doesn't stop people from voting but it just adds another barrier um 
and so the, the single family neighborhoods do have a, a kind of disproportionate power because they're the ones that basically decide who sits on council uh, very often. It seems to me. Is that, is that an impression uh, you would share? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, uh, I wonder how much of the, you know, the, the idea that uh, people in apartments don't vote or renters don't vote, um, you know, to a certain extent, they're not officially but they're, they're sort of quietly unofficially discouraged from participating, that, that they, don't, uh, they don't have the right. And I think we treat um, property ownership as if, uh, you know, that you, you kind of bought the right when you bought your house to, to have uh, your sway over things. And, you know, this idea of like, not only did I buy a house, I bought the neighborhood. And so, you know, it's not enough to have say over my own property that I own, but I, I also want to say over who lives next door to me and who lives down the block and how high things are across the street from me. And the, uh, I think that's pretty ridiculous for a city like Toronto. And I think as, uh, as um, you know, the, the 905 uh, individual cities get more dense or, or require more density, uh, it, it becomes increasingly ridiculous to push back against those things as well there. Um, kind of looking into the future now, because you're talking about as the, the 905 changes, you know, there right now there's a, a lot of talk, people are, are very much concerned about mortgage, like their mortgage payments, they're worried about in five years, um, whether or not their housing will become affordable, uh, so to speak. And, you know, combine that with the recent talk, oh, we need to build more, more uh, uh, living units uh, to put on the market to help bring down the price of, uh, of housing and, and what have you. I, what, what do you think we're looking into in terms of maybe a new are we, are we, is it possible that we're actually going to look into new ways of designing the Canadian city? Because for a while, especially out here in the 905, it was always just, no, we just keep building a new subdivision, right? That yeah. field over there, we can just put a new subdivision there, put a strip mall, and then look past, past to the next field. But I'm getting the sense that that, that need is going to change. This kind of market demand almost is going to force that change into, as we were saying, more dense, uh, more dense living, more more apartment buildings, if you will. Hopefully, what's your take on that? On that, am I am I reading too much into too much into the tea leaves on this one? I, I mean, I'm I'm not a like a housing expert or you know an analyst of that that kind of thing, but uh, it does seem to me that um, the idea that you can sort of um, buy early and buy low, and that's kind of your retirement policy. Or you're going to cash out big when you're ready to. Mm-hmm to move, uh, that doesn't seem feasible pretty much anywhere in any urbanized center. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we definitely want people, uh, we definitely have lots of people who are trying to enter the market, um, but you run into these problems like, okay, we're building a lot of things, but we're not building family size units for condos, right? right? We're, we're building bachelor pads, we're building you know, single single bedroom things. I guess that's kind of the, the point that we're, we've been trying to make in this on this podcast, especially coming off this provincial election where there's talk of, oh, we need to build more. We need to put more uh, stuff on the market. And there's something that we, Roland and I kind of noticed was that, yeah, they say the, the free market will provide, but it really isn't because the option, the options to buy on the free market is pretty much just like bachelor pad, one or two bedroom condo unit, or mm-hmm sprawling mcmansion out here in the 905 like there's and it's like well what about in between like yes. why, why, why are those our only two options or the only two things on the market that i can forget affording affording it's just that's my option to buy right, right. 
and I thought like there's so much space in between that may, it, I we should be looking at that uh, as to tell the market this is what we want you to provide for. Yeah, I, I mean, like I've been covering this kind of thing for about seven years, and I, I remember starting out and going to like conventions uh, and hearing people speak, like you know, city planners, that kind of thing, and uh, you know, the buzzwords were infill, missing middle, all those things that we, we still talk about. Um, but I, the sense that I get, and again, this is not my expertise, but like between the people, between developers and politicians and, and people in community groups, uh, it seems there's a, a confluence of things that keep that from actually happening in a lot of places. Um, but, you know, uh, if you ask uh, an urban planner, they'll still say things like, you know, urban infill, that kind of thing. A parking lot could be uh, sort of mid-rise housing or, you know, multi-tenants without, uh, you know, without getting the neighbors out, out in with pitchforks and, and things uh, about the, you know, the level of density or the height of it. So, mm-hmm. and what, but, uh, When we were just sort of discussing what we talked about today, uh, we were, we were, um, I, I kind of wrote the sentence just in the, the text I was sending, sending you, like, you know, how, how do we you know, in, in, in the 905 that we have, um, everybody's agreed that they don't want sprawl. Um, mm-hmm. But the problem with that is that everybody's also agreed that they don't want high rise and people aren't that keen on, on uh, missing middle infill either. Right. <laughs> so, you know, given that basically everything uh, is, is unpopular, how, how, do we, how do we sell that? You know, and, and I wonder if the ultimate problem is not so much the people are by the nature's small c conservative that people tend to move to an area because they like that neighborhood how it is right now and it's almost a normal natural human uh uh emotion to say no i don't want it to change i wouldn't have come here if i wanted it to be different but the the real problem is it's just the way that our local democracy works or Mm -hmm. doesn't work just at every direction kind of creates barriers to intelligent uh, negotiation over how, how cities evolve and grow. Um, so instead of, you know, it's, it always boils down to a, uh, to a battle of, of, of wills basically between no change and huge change rather yeah. than a kind of negotiated, okay, what can everybody live with? Is that, I mean, it, you know, and it comes back to the OLT and all these things. Um, is that your kind of take as well? That, that, that you know, it's almost like the, the problem is so huge. It, it's not just that, you know, we, we all agree kind of on what needs to happen. It's just how we get there is, is the problem. Yeah, I mean, like, I'd be interested as well to, to hear, I'd be interested to hear uh, both of your perspective as well, because uh, in Toronto, I, I tend to take a, a bit of a hard line on, on things like, Oh, I don't want it too dense. I don't want it too high. I'm like, you live in the fourth largest city in North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, I used to say, you know, if, if you don't like that, there are other places you could go and live uh, and where you can find that, that sort of suburban, um, you know, white picket fence sort of neighborhood that you, you seem to want. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I understand that like 905, it's, it's not just sleepy bedroom communities anymore. They're, they're, they're well, giant cities. See, that, that's the, I think there's a disconnect there because, you, that's how you view the 905. There are many people here in the 905 that view uh, view, view us as small towns. Like they, yeah. they, and it's and I mean, if you look through, if you drive through Mississauga, 
Mississauga is basically a collection of small towns that mm. were amalgamated back in the day into Mississauga. But I would argue that they, those, if you lived in one of those towns, you never really grew out of that identity as you know Streetsville or Cooksville or Port Credit or or wherever. You say right. you're Mississauga because that's where you're, the, the mail has to be delivered there. They'll say <laughs> you're in Mississauga, but you never really grew out of it. Here in Burlington, I know there are people who view it as, oh, it's a, it's a city with the little town feel. And I'm thinking that that's more of a detriment to Burlington more and more as, like, as you say, like, we're just, we're growing. We're the, yeah. you know, we, there's 5 million people living here in the 905. Um, and they, they need a place to live. Now, either we, we say flatten the green belt and just keep producing sprawl and cookie cutter subdivisions, which I don't think people want, mm-hmm. or we have to start building up now for some reason, the debate is always between like, oh, we can't, we don't want to look like uh, downtown Toronto. I'm like, okay, fair enough. But there's some, it's got to be, again, somewhere in the middle that we can all live with. Well, I, I, yeah. And my feeling is, so, you know, again, coming back to the, when I ran for election, the whole election in, in Burlington in 2018 was about downtown uh, building heights, basically. I mean, mm-hmm. described it as intensification, when you went and knocked on the door, it was like, I hate the high rises. I hate the high rises. And, and that was to say that was an overwhelming uh, thing that you heard at the doors is, is an understatement. It was just like 85%, 85, 90%. It was just, okay, what do you care about this election? I hate the downtown high. Now I was running in a downtown, in the downtown ward as well. So, but it was, you know, it, my kind of feeling was we can't just, I can't run as a candidate and, and say that 90% of my electorate are NIMBYs who don't know what they're talking about. I can't, <laughs> I can't do that. I have to accept and, and respect their point of view. And, you know, my feeling was then, and I, I think, you know, there would be a lot of agreement. There's this like, well, we, we, we kind of behave like there's only two places you can build. One is downtown, which is a very small area in any city, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And the other area is is out in the, the green fields and the, everything in between, which brings us to the single family home neighborhoods, obviously, and, and uh, opening up those areas for for uh, for growth where you know they are completely off limits in the way that our zoning currently works. Yeah, and, I mean, so I mean, I think there are a lot of answers there. It's just that I'm also not stupid enough to think that if you, if you, you know, even the, the, I mean, the recent um, housing task force that the PCs had, you know, their, their proposed sort of cure was, was, you know, at the first reading, I was like, oh yeah, this is really interesting. This is great. And then on the second reading, it's like, you're saying that as of right, anywhere you can go to, was it six stories, eight stories? I can't remember what, how many stories were. And it was just like, this is, it's not so much that I think there's, that's necessarily wrong, so much as I think it's a recipe for sort of political disaster that, <laughs> that, that there has to be some kind of, like either an area has complete power and can basically veto any change, which is mm-hmm. what the current situation with single family home neighborhoods, or no power at all, and the developers have all and build what the hell they want. It's like, well, neither of those extremes seems like the right solution to me. There should be, there should be negotiation and agreement over, uh, 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 but no one should have the right to say no or yes to uh, uh, 
I, you know, it's a, ultimately this is a democratic problem and not a, um, a problem about what should happen. It's how we negotiate how things are done in a less confrontational way. Um, I don't know if you're following what I'm saying there, but yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, yeah like uh, when I think of uh, you know what you're talking about, uh, Doug Ford government's style is constantly in in various different ways trying to sort of end run local authority, um, yeah. you know, all, all over Ontario. Um, I think the the problem with that, uh, and you know, uh, a lot of my my urbanist colleagues uh, celebrated that because they they were so sick of seeing. Um, you know, decent proposals get, um, you know, shouted down at the whatever various community committees um, and, uh, you know, just being frustrated with how are we ever going to get the appropriate amount of density uh, when, uh, you know, the loudest voices in the room are always fighting any, any kind of density or change like that. Um, but the thing is, when you, when you end run the local power, uh, it's not going to be the, the the MPPs that are going to have to deal with whatever the fallout is or or help make that work in practice. It's going to be at the local level. Um, and I think a lot of people won't understand or appreciate the, the differences in the levels of government. Um, so, uh, you know, well, these councillors, wherever... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, just, just on that note, it doesn't help when local councillors run on being the change, change candidate and saying, oh, I'm going to prevent all the high-rises from being built downtown, or I'm going to you know, we're going to stop all the new development and, and freeze it in its tracks. And you realize, well, you don't have any power to actually do that. Yeah. Uh, e even if they should, which probably, well, you know, that's a conversation. That, that, that's a, that's a different <laughs> argument altogether. But I mean, I, I know a lot of, a lot of candidates used to run on that saying, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to stop it. I'm going to stop that development. And we're going to, we're going to take back control of development. And four years later, like you haven't taken back anything. Yeah. Um, but in terms of Roland, what you were saying about like getting people on, on board, like the average, you know, citizens. Uh, yeah. I don't think that the right tactic is to say like, Hey, you're an, you're an idiotic NIMBY and you just, you don't care about the future. You don't care about any other people. Uh, I think there are um, different kinds of cases you can make depending on what kind of voter they are. Like you can explain that, it, you know, sprawl leads to a lot more, uh, you know, it's expensive. Sprawl is expensive. You got to put down that much more infrastructure. You got to build further and further out. And they will see that difference if, if they care about um, that line on their tax bill. Um, and then, you know, other, other more compelling things is like, uh, we know that these single family neighborhoods don't really work very well anymore. They don't represent, um, you know, family size or what people are looking for or people who don't want to you know, have to age out of the community that they spent 30 years in, but there's, you know, there's, there's no um, services nearby and, and they can't drive themselves around like they used to. There, there's a bunch of things like Cheryl Case uh, is brilliant and she's written quite extensively about just why those single family neighborhoods just don't really serve anyone, even the people that say they like them. Yeah, I, I, I totally... Um... I'm totally getting on board with that. Particularly in the world where, where we're working more from home, that that um, I know, I mean, I've worked from home since 2000, and, well, actually most of my life from one place or another, I've worked from home. Yeah. Um, and, and when I was looking at buying a house 10, 15 years ago, whatever, it's like, well, I don't want to, you know, a lot of these single family home neighbors are just boring wastelands. Um, <laughs> that's just to, to live there and walk the dog is boring. Um, uh, you know, so, I mean, I lived 
it did buy somewhere in a single family home neighborhood but it was within walking distance of somewhere <laughs> with restaurants right. and you know now you know lucky me that i was able to do that but um but yeah i mean the the the, the, the you know we we've done a the whole of North American culture has done an amazing marketing job on selling people and living in a little patch of land with nothing near it, um, mm-hmm. which is a, a strange kind of thing, really. But it, but it brings me back to that, just, just the extent to which we... The, the problem is, is so vast when we talk about selling this to, to uh, society when people just, like you say, I mean, explain to people the cost of sprawl the mm-hmm. the the um, uh, i mean the, the oh. basic dollar value of it but also the the cost in terms of the environment in terms of uh, uh, so many other things but it seems that like we're not even at the beginning of that conversation in so many ways but uh, and I, i'd say we kind of are because the like this i've been looking at this last election everyone was talking about we need to build more we need to throw open the doors to build more uh supply to meet the housing demand right or wrong and i thought that's an excellent opportunity for people to say okay but you have to build what we want to buy and the question is what do you want to buy now the the developers again it kind of comes back to my previous point the developers will say oh people want to buy these single family detached homes in neighborhoods and therefore we have to build into the green belt because that's the only place to build i would i'm arguing i would argue like what what should we be arguing for? Because I think people understand we need different. We need something not there if we don't want to build into the green belt. And I'm, Glenn, as somebody who's kind of been watching this for the last few years, like what's what what would be the ideal shift towards uh, that? Maybe people should be start demanding more of uh, development and city councils to start approving for. Um, well, uh, you know, this early days. Pie in the sky, like this is early days. Uh, we'll- it remains to be seen like how, how this turns out, but uh, I, I brought a 905 example. I, I think the, the plan for 20 minute walkable communities in Brampton mm-hmm. is uh, that's exactly the type of thing that, uh, that uh, 905 uh, city should be, should be looking at and, and building. And, and uh, it's the kind of design that makes you love living in the city in its own right, that it's not just a satellite community that like, Hey, Brampton is its own thing. It's, it's got, everything you need to like live, work and play. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as all of these cities increase in population, I think starting to plan for that now um, is is going to become important. And Roland, you mentioned the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I, I wonder how, what influence that had on people who maybe considered where they lived, like a bedroom community, uh, when they, they couldn't go downtown for work and, you know, they, they, they were stuck in, in their neighborhoods. Um, I, I would like to think that that influenced a lot of people to say like, hey, we've got to make these, uh, you know, livable neighborhoods in their own right and not just a place to like lay your head at the end of the day. And I, I, I mean, it's something we certainly talked about. And again, we're kind of disappointed in all the parties that they haven't caught onto this of the kind of, okay, there's a huge negative with the pandemic, but there was mm. also a huge positive and that we were spending less time commuting um, and sitting in offices in front of a computer when it's like, well, I've got a computer at home. Why am I driving to a different computer? No. Uh, and you would think, I don't quite understand why, why the parties weren't kind of embracing that and saying, you know, look, 
we can do everything by, you know, the, we can do so many things via Zoom now. This is a good thing. This means you've got all this extra time to walk from your home to the downtown restaurant on a Wednesday evening and have a glass of wine with friends or a meal or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and have, you know, a, a vastly better quality of life uh, because we spend more of it in our, in our homes. Um, and if you live in a, you know, vibrant, walkable city, then, then, you know, your quality of life can be vastly better than your parents was who just hacked in and out of Toronto uh, seven day, uh, five days a week. Um, uh, and, yeah, the, the fact that 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 so much of the election and the kind of political discourse is about getting back to normal. It's like, well, normal sucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we want to get back to normal? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I share your disappointment in, in that election. Uh, you know, I, I truly don't know what it was about. It, it's, you know, we're, we're two weeks out from it. And uh, I don't know what it was about, but it was not about um, urban living or anything that concerns the three of us uh, beyond what, as Joel said, just like, we've got to build something. We got to build more, but like we never got into any specifics. Uh, I think yeah. every party had something like, we're going to build this many houses or, you know, we're going to do this or that. But um, the numbers that they were talking about were negligible. Um, and uh, yeah. I, I mean, again, I mean, obviously coming, coming from Europe. Never really got up. into the, <laughs> what's that? Yeah. Well, coming from Europe, I mean, I, I grew up, um, surrounded by 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 council housing, I mean, and council housing often would have a bad reputation, but the vast vast majority of it was excellent, affordable housing built and maintained by municipalities. That uh, is desirable enough now that when the the conservative government tried to sell it off, I mean, the, the, those houses sell and you know now have secondary, you know. Uh, and it's like, why is why does North America never consider this that that, that kind of mass uh, municipal housing is is a is an it's option? Be, it's because it got associated with poor people. That's, yes. that, that's it got associated with poor people, and I'll be honest, with racialized poor people. Uh, and that they that's just people have in their heads. You if you say I'm going to build a this neighborhood will be socialized housing. We'll give it all over to uh, the regional housing corporation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, people be up in arms because say, I don't want to live next to poor people. For example, perfect uh, 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 note here. When I bought my house, uh, there is a co-op, uh, co-op of townhomes just around the corner of where I live. And my realtor who was telling us like, do, you do know that there's a, there's a co-op around the corner for me. Like it's, it's full of, you know, poor people. And we're like, I don't care. The house is great. It's where it's in a neighborhood that we can afford and it's kind of what we want. And it's got, we can plug into the great schools and, and what have you. Um, been living here for 10 plus years now. Haven't looked back. Uh, it's a great neighborhood, but again, it's that, that, you know, we're not building cause we have so many fears about, well, if we allow over buildings over a certain density or a certain uh, height, you know, we're going to turn in the option is now just going to turn in Toronto. That's it. If we allow social social housing to be built near us, oh, poor people are going to be, and that'll be that'll bring down my property values, and I can't trust poor people. And so, you know, we're we're so caught up in our fears that we're not really talking about what's the kind of livable, 
the community that we could have. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that I might be pie in the sky. Maybe I'm, I'm looking at the world through the rose colored glasses, but the, the current arguments just mean, I think the same problems just down the road. I tend to, I mean, I always come back to this kind of dem- the, the shortcomings in our democracy mean that the decisions we make when we have elections are distorted and oversimplified. Like if people are capable of making pretty complex and advanced decisions at elections when they understand the, 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 the full implications. I mean, we, we, you know, during the sort of eighties and nineties, people were voting on the basis. I mean, we may not have had the result you wanted, whatever, but it was, you know, people are making judgments on, on levels of national debt and, uh, 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 you know, it's like, okay, we're, you know, if we vote for this, it's going to imply slightly higher taxes or whatever, but but we're willing to support that because of the other things that come along. So people can make fairly advanced decisions, but with our municipal decision-making, which is the stuff that touches us every day, we're just talking about the most... Uh, we're talking almost at a kind of childish level of, 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 of superficiality, um, uh, even compared with a federal election, <laughs> which is maybe not as good as it should be, but uh, and it's because we're we're not informed, and also I mean I also tend to think that because because of the the, the system we have where where, where municipal um, councillors and mayors are, are fully independent, that means that you know I, you know as a candidate I couldn't run and say I'm going to do this I think this, because it's like well no I'm one voice if I get elected who knows what I can do it would depend yeah. on all the other guys who get elected um now I could be take the traditional route uh, and just lie to people and say this is what I'm going to do or I could try and be slightly more honest and say well this is what I'd like to do <laughs> yeah um it, it I don't know. I mean, to what extent do you think that the, the underlying all this is the kind of democratic deficit uh, that, that operates when everything to do with kind of municipal level uh, decision making? Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what, what you could do as a candidate, what, what I hope to see from candidates all over Ontario as we as we all go to the municipal elections is, um, you know, just take a kind of rising tides raises all boats approach where, um you know, as a candidate, a local candidate, your job isn't just to get elected. It's, it's, you are also selling like why local democracy, local democracy is important. Um, I'd like to see that from a lot of candidates. I mean, obviously there are some grizzled old incumbents who have always been there and they probably always will be there. And, and they, you know, they're not incentivized for, to change anything or inspire anyone or, you know, they, they're just trying to win their seat back. But uh, I'm hoping to see all over the GTA uh, a lot of candidates who, um, when they go door knocking, explain why why this matters because I think a lot of regular people just see it as uh, that's that's the big building where my my you know my tax checks go, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think people, yeah, the le- the level of of respect for municipal. I mean, was, sometimes when you look at Hamilton, <laughs> for a good reason. <laughs> there's a reason why there's not much respect. But, but at the same time, it, it is so important. Um, yeah, I mean, like, well, look at, I mean, that's probably a good way to wrap up this uh, conversation. But um, looking ahead to October, uh, also, you're, you're probably uh, most familiar with the, with the ins and outs of Toronto and, and uh, 
and we're not. But um, what do you think? Um, what are you expecting to see in in, in the kind of Toronto election this year? Uh, well, we've already seen a lot of uh, longtime uh, councillors uh, stepping down, moving on to other things. Uh, some of them have already left. Uh, you know, Kristen Wong-Tam is now a, a provincial politician. Uh, Michael Ford is also now a provincial mm-hmm. politician. Uh, Tobacco's loss, I suppose. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, that, that's exciting because uh, a, a total power vacuum um, can, can sometimes be an opportunity for fresh ideas. Now there are like, there are unofficial political parties in the background that will try and just install their person um, as a replacement. Uh, but uh, um, yeah, I, I'm hopefully, I, I would really like to see a lot of fresh faces, fresh new ideas um, uh, and a little bit of fearlessness about uh, just exactly what we should demand of the places that we live. And here's just, just something, just a um, question I've asked a few people over the years about the cities that were amalgamated back in the, the Harris era. Obviously, Toronto's one of those, Hamilton's another one. Um, and, and, you know, when I look at Hamilton's current politics, it, it seems to be still very much about problems that, that came out of amalgamation, uh, that, that, that the old urban Hamilton and new rural and suburban Hamilton just don't really see things the same way. Um, oh, yeah. uh, and, uh, and kind of resent each other because of that, you know, and the, 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 the suburban area thinks that the downtown is why their taxes are so high and vice versa, you know. Do you think, I mean, I don't, it's not on the radar and it's not going to happen, but do you think there would actually be a case for de-amalgamation in, in, in places like Toronto and Hamilton? I mean, uh, it pops up every time we have uh, some kind of argument about a subway or, you know, this and that. And, you know, the former Mayor Rob Ford uh, actively tried to uh, exploit that, uh, that divide um, to, I, w- I would think, uh, generation- generationally damaging uh, effect. But uh, personally, I, I've only known an amalgamated Toronto. I'm not interested in having a serious conversation about de-amalgamating because um, the city's just going to grow and grow. And these, uh, these old lines on the map are, are going to make less and less sense. Uh, what I would love to see is uh, smaller ward sizes once again. Um, as, as some of your listeners may know, you know we, <laughs> we got our, our number of wards slashed in, in, in half and now you have one councillor representing something bonkers like 100,000 people. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I think uh, more, more local, um, more ability at the local level to, to reach out to individual constituents would be good. I wonder, this, do you think this year might be a, a bit of a check and balance against the, the provincial government from the municipal level? And something we've always puzzled at is the, pro, the, the, the city councils in the 905 all, dec- all complain that they don't have enough control, enough power over their own uh, decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they saw what happened with Toronto as... A warning: This could happen to us, in yeah. some form or another. Is it po- is it would it make sense for the the city councils around the nine hundred five to maybe start pulling together and start taking a firmer stand against uh, against Queens Park and saying, no, we're we're we aren't going to stand for this, and you can legislate us out of existence, but if you are, then you take on the ownership of these decisions. Um, you know, like 
because we, we I, I just we keep hearing you know Burlington or Hamilton or Mississauga, Brampton, Newmarket, all saying, oh, we want control over this process. We want control over how we how our cities are developed on our own terms. And yet they're yeah. still fighting one-on-one battles with Queens Park. Yet they all want the same thing. And maybe it's time that they kind of start pooling together and start actively saying, hey, no, we're we're not, this is the line in the sand. We're not crossing it. If I was a political strategist, uh, I would say that uh, something I've noticed about Doug Ford is he really does not like to be the one uh, with whom the buck stops. Right. Uh, yep. Yep. So yep. I, I guess you could put pressure on uh, at the local level, like cities, um, mayors and council could put pressure on saying like, hey, you know, if if you want to be in charge of this, go ahead. But like you break it, you bought it right. um, and really lay uh, whatever the outcome is. Uh, at his feet, uh, because he does not like that, and he does not like to wear those kind, the kind of fallouts from from the control that he, he insists on having in the first place. I really feel yeah. it's something, and we spoke to the mayor of Newmarket a couple of months ago, uh, and uh, I know well a point he made that I would also make is that you know. So often the, the municipal politicians are taking the heat for, for decisions that are ultimately made provincially uh, mm-hmm. because we have this kind of facade of municipal decision making where, where a councillor will sit down and vote on a development. And then, but, you know, it's appealed or whatever, or the uh, provincial rules state that X has to happen. Well, uh, the poor schmuck in, in, in the council chamber in let's pick Oakville at random so I don't offend anybody I, I know particularly well. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, they, they take the heat for it come elections. I was, oh, why have you let this happen? And it's, it's like, well, I didn't let it happen. I, I had no choice. And and that seems wrong somehow that, that you know, I, either you have real local democracy or you don't. And then that we, yeah. we, I feel that, yeah, he's like, Let's let's just get rid of this game. If if the decisions are basically dictated from at a provincial level, then let the province take the rap as well, and that that that's fair, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyway, I mean, we, we're approaching well more than approached the um, uh, the reasonable time limit on our episodes, so we should probably wrap it up there. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Glenn uh, Bauman, for joining us today, and. Uh, We'll include uh, links to uh, uh, the spacing.ca website and uh, Spacing Magazine and, of course, the uh, Spacing Radio podcast as well in the show notes and thoroughly encourage all our listeners to go and uh, uh, check that out and everything that Spacing does. It's it's a great great entity. So thanks, uh, Glenn, for joining us today. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time.
I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.